Copernicus proposed and Galileo confirmed that the Earth is not at the center of our universe. But they did more than rearrange our understanding of the heavens. Heliocentrism initially caused conflict, but it ultimately changed the way we see scripture and God and ourselves. Pope John Paul II said, science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. Today on the Disciple Science Podcast, we'll turn our eyes to a different topic, evolution, to explore the origins debate and ask if when it changed the way we see the world and the life that fills it, did it cause a problem or did it solve a problem? Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science and studying birds and in following Jesus. I help start Disciple Science to produce short videos and a podcast and other resources to help Christians see the compatibility of faith and science and to explore nature as an avenue to encounter God in a whole new way. We believe that science and theology together can produce a fuller picture of reality and that science can inspire a strengthened walk of faith. Now let's get on with the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I hope all of you have had a chance to listen to our past weeks as we've discussed natural theology and the metaphor of two books of Revelation, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Uh, we finished it up with an interesting interview with Dr. Lee San Winslow, where she explores the ideas that Jonathan Edwards held around why nature exists, why God created, so that messages can be embedded into what has been made so that we can know God through a really fascinating discussion, something we'll continue to explore more in the future as we get into some of these topics in more specific detail. But for now, we're going to get started on a new topic that we'll probably explore for the next, I don't know, six or eight weeks. We have a, a tentative plan and we might tweak that as questions come in or as uh, new topics get presented. So we're going to take on the topic of evolution and the Christian faith. We released a new video uh, last week, about a week and a half ago, I think. I hope you've all had a chance to see it. It is introducing uh, this issue and why it's caused so much confusion and um, conflict in the Christian church. And what we want to work towards is a clear understanding of why some Christians find this to be fully compatible with their understanding of Scripture and of God, and others do not, in hopes that in the future we'll have greater unity on this, less conflict, and we can walk forward um, creating theology around our understanding of how God acts in the natural world. Now, evolution has been an area of active debate for quite some time, and it created quite a bit of conflict among people that had it held to a certain understanding of Scripture, a certain view that Scripture, especially the first uh, 11, say, chapters of Genesis, should be interpreted as a literal historical narrative that if you had been there with a video camera on your shoulder, it would have been occurring in just the way it's written down in Scripture. No metaphors, no analogies, no hyperbole, no 
um, uh, embellishment for theological understanding, just simple uh, chronicle of the historical happenings. Now, that wasn't the only view. It's just the one view that has kind of gotten the most attention and has become, in society's view, the dominant Christian view. But that really isn't the only perspective that Christians held. Many other Christians do see those passages as a little bit more nuanced. But all the same, evolution uh, does call into question those passages if they are written as a literal historical narrative. Now, when Darwin proposed his theory, he was trying to solve a problem, a scientific problem. He wasn't trying to cause problems, and he, he knew it was going to cause some conflict in the Christian church, and that wasn't his goal. He wanted to just have a clear understanding of how the world works. And so he was trying to solve problems, which is basically what scientists do. We try and propose theories that create new meaning and understanding from the evidence that lays before us, from the data that we can gather about the way the world works. And he found problems in the uh, current paradigm that existed and wanted to come up with a new approach, a new theory, a new understanding around how the world works. So pre-Darwin, the dominant view in the Judeo-Christian world was a, uh, a belief that the flood account and the Genesis account that both take place within the first eight chapters of Genesis are, uh, can be used to understand the history of life on earth. That basically all life was created during the creation week and that all forms of animal life were put on the ark and all of them got off the ark. And so there were a couple of ideas. One is that all species that ever existed still exist because they were created during the creation week, they all made it onto the ark, and therefore they were all saved and still persist. And that species don't change. It's this concept that we call the fixity of species. That was the, the term given to it, right? That the, that the species identity is fixed, that the species characteristic is fixed. So that was the dominant paradigm. All the species that ever existed still exist, and all the species have always existed in their current form. And Darwin was very aware of this approach and this belief, and he held it himself when he started his education. But as his education progressed, and as he went on his famous journey on the Beagle, during which they explored the, the tropics and famously visited the Galapagos and uh, other regions in the, in the tropical um, Pacific and Atlantic, he encountered things that caused him to question some of those assumptions about the fixity of species and that all species that ever existed still exist. So on his journey, he encountered evidence that made him question those beliefs. And among the evidence that pushed him in that direction was, uh, number one, the study of biogeography, which is, if you're not familiar, it's probably not something that everybody is, is conversant in, is the study of the, the geographical distribution of species, so biogeography. So where do species live? And what he found, famously, uh, most notably when he was on the Galapagos, is that the, the, the distribution of certain species is really unique biogeographically, meaning that some species are found only in certain areas that island archipelagos like the Galapagos and Hawaii have really unique combinations of species. 
uh, that you see some odd patterns like the absence of, of mammals and a lot of predators from a lot of island regions. Uh, famously, New Zealand had no native mammals except for marine mammals. Uh, and a lot of islands have no, have no native mammals. And he didn't quite know how to piece that together with his understanding and the dominant understanding that all life was on the ark and then radiated out from the ancient Near East where the ark came to rest. And he thought, well, that should be the, the peak of biodiversity in that region and that all life should have spread out from there. But he encountered, again, all these forms of life that existed only in these odd little pockets of the world. And it didn't fit his paradigm around the history of life. He also was really um, fascinated by some of the fossil evidence that he found. He was an amateur paleontologist, but had a little bit of training. And it didn't take him and other uh, scientists as this field of paleontology grew and expanded long to determine that not all the forms of life on Earth uh, that have ever existed still persist. I always imagine them digging up the bones of a, a Brachiosaurus or a Diplodocus or a Tyrannosaur or something and just saying, oh my goodness, have you ever seen one of these? I'm sure I'm uh, painting my modern ideals into the way things actually happen. It wasn't just like that. But when they did unearth fossils and didn't take them too long to realize that these were species that are extinct it caused them to question their understanding of that biblical narrative. And so the fossils caused him and others to question this idea, again, of the fixity of species and the persistence of all forms of life on the earth. He also, uh, like many of us, was really struck by how similar so many species are. Uh, famously, in the Galapagos, the tortoises and the finches just have a very strong resemblance to each other, but just slight modifications on the different islands or in the different habitats within those islands. And he said, my goodness, isn't it remarkable how well adapted each of these species are to their circumstances, yet how similar they are to these other uh, species that are in close proximity in this little grouping of islands. Now, he thought, it could be that all of these species were created in their current form, but it sure seems like they might share ancestry and have some sort of modification that allows them to thrive in their unique environment, but have some sort of shared ancestry. And so when he saw these patterns of what appeared to be relatedness, just in the way we look at, at people, related cousins or or brothers or sisters or whatever, and say, oh my goodness, look at you. You look just like your dad, or you look just like your cousin. And we just deduce that they're related based on their similarity of observation. Darwin did that for species, not for individuals, but for species. He says, look at these species. You just look like you ought to be related. But that didn't fit the paradigm that all species existed in their current form and don't change. It didn't fit the fixity of species. He also was really intrigued by um, this, what we call vestigial structures or structures that don't have an obvious purpose. And he wondered if those structures might be uh, a remnant of the historical characteristic of those ancestral species. So Darwin was out to solve a problem and that these observations from the natural world didn't fit our understandings of the ark, 
didn't fit our understandings of the creation week, that all species that have ever existed still exist, that they've only existed for a very short time, that everything was on the ark and radiated out from, uh, you know, Turkey or the mountains of Ararat in the ancient Near East. And he wondered if there was a better explanation. Now, we often give him credit for the theory of evolution, but that was an idea that already existed. As we mentioned in the video, it had existed for thousands of years. In fact, uh, Epicurus, who was walking around 200 years before Jesus, was the first to propose some version of evolution. And he wondered if all life forms might have descended from a common ancestor. But this idea didn't stick and wasn't very plausible and didn't get much attention, in part because nobody could just make sense out of how that could happen. Without a mechanism, people just kind of dismissed it as something that didn't really hold much water. And what Darwin is famous for is proposing the mechanism that really persists to this day, the mechanism of natural selection that so many scientists found as a, a plausible and likely uh, explanation for how species could change over time. So Darwin solved the problem of these odd observations by saying species do change. And species have been around for a very, very, very long time. So he was not the first to suggest an old earth, but he had been introduced to the, the possibility of an old earth when during his education. And he thought these observations supported that. He thought, hey, these species resemble each other because they are related to each other. They do have some ancestral um, overlap. This patterns of biogeography that he was so struck by that species arose in those locations and that the finches and tortoises and the Galapagos um, were uniquely adapted because that's where they came into being. That's where they, that's where they evolved. And that the fossil record of all of these ancient and fantastic beasts, which no longer existed, uh, it was evidence of this ancient history of life on Earth and the story of change over time. And the absence of so many of our modern species from the fossil record made sense to him now, that this is a story of ancient life, not modern life. It wasn't from a flood from, uh, you know, 4,000 years ago. It was from millions of years ago, at least. They, they, weren't, they didn't know the time frame at that point, but just they thought very, very old. And the, the vestigial structures made more sense to him, again, as remnants of the evolutionary story of those species and individuals. So Darwin proposed this theory of evolution by natural selection to solve the problem that science had these observations that just didn't fit with the dominant paradigm of fixity of species and the persistence of species. And the idea was quickly embraced by the majority of the scientific community. Not everybody. There were people that questioned it. And if you go through the history books, you know, maybe we'll discuss those sometime. There were some, some interesting questions. And interestingly, Darwin really tried to address those questions. There were six editions of his book on the origin of species before he passed. And in each one of those editions, he tried to address the people that were questioning his ideas. And so he was very aware of the controversies. But despite those questions, the majority of people thought, this is it. This idea makes sense. It was easy to understood and it followed logic. It was rooted in artificial selection, which Darwin was conversant in because he liked to breed pigeons. 
and we were well aware of what we could do with artificial breeding to breed crops and to breed uh, animals. And so he thought maybe some version of this could happen in the natural world to create new varieties of species in nature. Now, Darwin's theory has also uh, gained the respect of the scientific community because it makes predictions about the natural world. And most of those predictions, most of mainstream science believes to have come true. So he predicted that the planet must be very old. This was an area of active debate. And he said, in order for this idea to work, we need vast periods of time. So he, he uh, postulated that the planet must be very old. He was on board with uh, the, the geologists that were first proposing this idea. And again, in mainstream science, that idea has been confirmed. He proposed the idea that all species are related. And this is very controversial, especially among creationist groups, uh, different creationist groups, young earth and progressive creationist groups that do believe that God intervened miraculously. But among mainstream science, the genetic evidence points to shared ancestry. And so that prediction was also upheld. He predicted that we would find transitional fossils. Yet another extremely controversial topic among young earth and progressive creationist groups. But among mainstream scientists, they think that they have found many transitional fossils and that there are some explanations for why we haven't found more of them. And then lastly, we can apply Darwin's theories to our modern understandings of the world. In fact, my field of ecology is really rooted in testing the theory of natural selection to explain how species interact with each other, and it holds up, and it works. And we made predictions when we started using antibiotics. People said, oh, based on the theory of natural selection, we can predict that some of these bacteria are going to gain resistance to these antibiotics that we're using, and that's what happened. And when we started genetically modifying crops and uh, implanting the genes for coding for this Bacillus thuringiensis um, toxin that's bad for insects, people said, oh, some of those insects are going to gain resistance to that just based on the theory of natural selection. And that's what happened. And so when theories can make predictions and those predictions are held true, that gives many people more confidence in that theory. So Darwin was trying to solve a problem, a problem of scientific observations and data that didn't make sense. But as we're well aware, he also caused a problem, a caused a problem for the Christian church in that it gave support to the idea that the earth is very ancient, which made people question their reading of scripture. And related to that, one of the biggest areas of discussion and controversy within what we call the origins debate, where Christian theology interfaces with science, is the conclusion that if there was uh, millions or billions of years of life before humans arrived on scene, that means there were millions and billions of years of animals dying and suffering and eating each other before we had the human fall. Now, uh, this has caused some people to question the doctrine of the fall. This has caused some people to revisit scripture and say, maybe the fall isn't what we thought it was. It's caused us to question whether the fall fundamentally overhauled the way the earth is and functions. As some people believe that pre-fall, uh, you know, the, 
there was no death and post fall there was. So this is the one one of the spiciest, hottest topics in the origins debate, and that the young earth creationists really feel that an, a good creation that's filled with animals dying and suffering is incompatible. Now, I think that this is a false dichotomy. Uh, this is a big, spicy topic, and I don't want to dig into it right now, but I, I just think that this is something that I'll admit is a, is a really important topic that we get right, uh, or at least have uh, good explanations for, but it's not a simple one. What I think is even more remarkable is that people were deeply uncomfortable with evolution because it didn't involve a deity. It didn't require supernatural intervention. Now, some people think it did to start life, but that once life existed, then uh, then perhaps life could have changed and evolved and and produced all life that lays before us without a miracle. Now, this called into question our understanding of how God acts. Uh, this called into question, again, once again, our understanding of Scripture and what it's teaching us about the process of creation. But the distancing of God from the creative process caused a lot of people to, um, to reformulate their conception of who God is, how God acts, and what uh, what scripture means to us today. This is why Dawkins said evolution created intellectually fulfilled atheists because they could now provide a fuller explanation for the story of life on earth and it no longer needed a God to be the creator. That also implies that humans are a byproduct of this process as well and are therefore the product of chance, uh, which is... Something that needs a little unpacking in and of itself is are things that are random, incompatible with our understanding of God. It changed a sense of what it means to be created in the image of God. You can see that there are so many different uh, theological ideas and doctrines that are intertwined with our understanding of God as creator and sustainer. And exactly what does that mean? So let's come back to where we started. Are these real problems? Or are they problems of perception? If we revisit the story of Copernicus and Galileo, they cause problems in that, yes, it caused some people to question scripture and it caused some people to question their faith. But we now, hundreds of years later, think those were not real problems. They were problems of perception, that we were misunderstanding scripture and that we were uh, basing our understanding of God and our relationship with God on the idea that everything revolved around us and that we were the center of God's reality. And we now see that the earth is one of trillions of planets and that God's love is big enough to include all of that, right? So it's changed our view of God. And this is what Pope John Paul II is saying, I think, when he says science can purify religion from error and superstition. The story of Galileo and Copernicus gives us a sense of how we misunderstood the scriptures, we misunderstood God, and we now have a clear understanding of how to read the Bible and how to understand God. So, does that mean that evolution is in the process of doing the same thing? It clearly has created problems. It has led people away from their faith. It has caused them to disregard 
the Bible. And I don't want to dismiss that. That's tragic, I think. I love the scriptures and I am so discouraged when people dismiss God because of science or really any other purpose. But I wonder if centuries from now, we'll look back on this evolution debate. And now I'm rooting this on the assumption that evolution is the correct explanation for how God created. Now, I know many of you will probably dispute that and disagree with me, but I think that the evidence is clearly pointing in that direction. And I'm on board with the theologians that say, you know, that the scriptures are not Uh, intended to be a book of science. They're not intended to teach us how God created. They're intended to teach us why God created. The, The point here is that while evolution is creating problems and that it's causing some of us to question scriptures and our faith, I think it may be solving problems in that it's helping us to better understand scripture. And it's helping us to better understand God. And it's helping us to better understand what scripture refers to when it's talking about goodness and death. That death is a multi-layered, multi-faceted thing, right? That there was physical death and there's death when you're exiled from the presence of God. And those are two different types of death that are described in different ways in scripture. So this is a topic that we'll continue to expand on in the future I know probably have stirred up some questions and maybe some controversy, but as we move forward, I want to allow us to consider that evolution may be the means by which God acts, that science is a revelation of how God acts, and that as the Pope said, science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes, and each can draw the other into a wider world in which both can flourish. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. Disciple Science is a crowdfunded nonprofit that is exploring the intersection of faith and science. We believe that scientific understandings can inspire a deep and stronger Christian faith. We're hard at work on a few more videos, and we hope the videos and the podcasts and all the resources that we're working to produce will help you see a vision for how the study of nature be a valuable contribution to your walk with Jesus. Now, we want all these resources to be available free of charge. We want small groups to adopt them and Sunday school groups to adopt them, and we want everyone to see them and hopefully strengthen their understanding of God. But we need your help to make that happen. You can support the artists that are working on these videos and all of the team that's involved in making this happen by donating via the support button on the disciplescience.com website. While you're there, you can also explore the rest of the resources and sign up for the newsletter and send us feedback about what you want to hear more of in the future. We would also appreciate your help if you'd be willing to take the time to rate and share our videos and podcasts and tell your friends about Disciple Science so that we can build an audience and grow into an effective ministry. I want to thank a few of our donors that have played an active role in making the past couple months of Disciple Science Go. Uh, Kristen Johnson, Susie Wolfer, Jason Heese, Dallas Fontenot, Curtis and Margot Eaton, Bo and Robin Anjami, Nate and Jill Carey, and my wonderful parents, James and Barbara Gentry. Thanks to everybody. Your support provides so much encouragement to us 
It really keeps us going. I also want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again next week. Bye.